Okay, this is uh, Pitchko Theory 1, Unit 5, Part 60. So let's talk about uh, respiratory distress secondary to cardiovascular conditions, specifically um, pulmonary edema from cardiogenic pulmonary edema and pulmonary embolus. Pulmonary embolus being uh, a very infrequent condition that you and I run into. Um, cardiogenic pulmonary edema being a much more common condition we run into. So acute pulmonary edema, uh, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, <coughs> um, the left ventricle fails over time. So this is typically a patient who has chronic systemic hypertension. And the reason they call hypertension the silent killer is because people are completely unaware they have high blood pressure. That's why you've got to get your blood pressure measured at least once a year, twice a year. You guys should be doing it at least twice a year as medics because you work with other medics that can take your blood pressure when you're on shift. And um, you, uh, you know, what happens is sometimes people have high blood pressure for years and are completely unaware. So they feel fine, right? And then they go into heart failure and they don't understand why. So it is a silent killer and it's important to monitor your pressure. And if you've got parents who are stubborn and don't like to see the doctor, um, as a paramedic, you know, hey dad, I need to practice blood pressures. Do you mind? Uh, dad, your blood pressure is 148 on 92. Time to get on some ACE inhibitors. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I have a question. Yeah. Um, I went for uh, a massage the other day. I took my blood pressure and it was 140 over 120. Yeah. So this is the point where I go to the doctor. No, well, I wouldn't get overly worried about it, um, but take additional blood pressures. Uh, so the, the cutoff generally for hypertension that they start to consider treating is 140 on 90. So 140, on, it, it all depends too, if you just had a big meal or any meal, if you just had, you know, a coffee or a soda drink with caffeine in it, that'll raise your blood pressure too. So it's, it, yeah, stress. It's better to take like a series of blood pressure over, you know, once a week or so just to get a an idea what what's your blood pressure when you get up, what's your blood pressure well before a meal, that kind of thing. Uh, and if you're hovering consistently um, over 140 and over 90 diastolic, then yeah, you should go see your family doc and just tell them, you know, keep a diary maybe your blood pressures. But most of you have parents who, if they're not on antihypertensive, um, they may well need to be. So you know take their blood pressures under the guise that you're practicing as a paramedic student, and then you can give them some medical advice, right? Because you want your parents to live a long time. Unless you dislike your parents, then, you know. Oh, yeah, Dad, your blood pressure's fine. You're fine. The guy's gonna explode any day now. <laughs> nice. Nice, nice, eh? It's really not the kind of paramedics we want in the field, but it's just, such is my humor. Uh, so, <coughs> over time, the left ventricle, you know, has to pump against this resistance. We call it afterload. So the resistance against which the heart has to pump, the term for that is afterload. Blood returning to the heart, we call that preload. Makes sense, right? Preload to the heart, afterload after the heart. So you get this um, chronic systemic hypertension, and the left ventricle starts to enlarge to compensate and after a period of time years typically it starts to fail so it's not able to eject all of its content so maybe it receives 80 mls um, with each filling and it can only um, expel 60 mls of the 80 and that's called a decreased ejection fraction <coughs> and you'll see ejection fraction 
um, described in terms of percentage on, on patients' charts. So we, when you go into the hospital and you see patients with a history of heart failure, you look at the rejection fraction. Um, so as the heart fails, um, there's an increase in hydrostatic pressure in the lung circulation. So hydrostatic pressure means the pressure of fluid against the walls, the capillaries, that sort of thing. And um, eventually the, the, the capillaries start to leak. And so fluid starts to leak from the pulmonary capillaries into the interstitium. So we see interstitial edema, and then that fluid uh, makes its way into the alveoli. And that's when we auscultate, we hear crackles. We hear air going through fluid-filled alveoli, that's crackles. <coughs> that's heart failure, cardiogenic heart failure. There are a number of uh, different non-cardiogenic types of heart failure. Um, but if you're going to treat that with uh, CPAP or nitroglycerin, you'd have to patch to a base hospital before you consider doing that. So we treat cardiogenic uh, APE with uh, nitroglycerin and CPAP, uh, but non-cardiogenic you'd have to patch. So um, non-cardiogenic includes patients with uh, abnormal capillary, capillary permeability, uh, sepsis, uh, inhalation injury from uh, either heat or steam, uh, drugs, certain drugs, opioids and salicylates sometimes um, lead to pulmonary edema. I, I've not yet had an opiate or a salicylate overdose where the patients had pulmonary edema, but it does happen. Renal failure, high altitude, they call that high altitude pulmonary edema. Um, that's why they, uh, climbers typically climb to a certain level and then stay overnight, acclimatize to that level before they're climbing on to the next one. So. Um, renal failure, high altitude, aspiration, which would be fluids or vomitus into the lungs, seizures sometimes. Again, I've never had a seizure patient with pulmonary edema, but it can happen. Trauma. Um, and patients with pulmonary contusions will sound just like heart failure. They have um, bleeding into the lungs, and it just sounds like crackles. It can be unilateral crackles. If it's one side of the chest that's injured, it can be bilateral crackles. But uh, pulmonary contusions will give you crackles. <coughs> Central nervous system injury, brain injuries specifically, uh, and airway obstruction sometimes. Uh, so presentation for cardiogenic acute pulmonary edema, uh, dyspnea, tachypnea, orthopnea. What does orthopnea mean again? Yeah. Yeah, the yeah what's your first name again? <laughs> Matt. Matt, okay. Matt and Matt, 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 Matt. Okay, uh, yeah, they have to sleep sitting up because they're short of breath. And, and what that does is it uh, the causes the fluids to pool in the base of the lungs, so it makes it e easier to breathe, right? They lie on their back, it pools in the posterior lungs, and they get short of breath. And uh, so they get orthopneic, they, uh, heart failure, uh, bilateral crackles, uh, and if they wake up short of breath, that's called paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. That's a great term. I have a buddy of mine who's he's completely not medical in any way, shape, or form, and I only talk to him about once a year or so, not very often. And I'll say, Jeff, how are you doing? He says, I'm good. I haven't had paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea yet. <laughs> he just loves that term. So, PND. Uh, so paroxysmal means um, sudden onset. Uh, 
unexpected. They may or may not have wheezing. Sometimes if they just have interstitial edema, CHFers can have a little bit of a wheeze because it irritates the, the conducting airways. Um, and severe acute pulmonary edema would result in fulminating pulmonary edema. Um, you've seen those horses in Western who ride for hours and hours and hours and then drop dead and they've got foam coming out of their mouth. That's my, my golden retriever does that too, but it's not because she's in fulminating pulmonary edema. She just saliva all over the place <laughs> from the excitement, I think. Then she shakes herself and gets saliva wrapped around her nose. It's really disgusting. <coughs> I have to take, take the leaves off the ground and wipe her face off and <coughs> wipe the goop off her face. But uh, yeah, pink frothy sputum would be uh, fulminating pulmonary edema. Uh, I'll tell you what, people do crazy things when they're hypoxic, right? <coughs> Hypoxia is, is in some ways a little like alcohol. Uh, people behave strangely when they're hypoxic. Some people are giddy when they're hypoxic. Some people are just confused when they're hypoxic. Some are drowsy and some are homicidal. Some are just like, um. <laughs> so uh, everyone's, everyone's different. Um, a buddy of mine, Dave and his partner, got a call for a guy who was short of breath. They got to his apartment they heard footsteps in the apartment. They knocked on the door, there was no answer. They opened the door, and this guy was foaming at the mouth. Pink frothy sputum, um, probably about 70, a little overweight, and um, cyanosed, pale, looked horrible, looked like he was near death, and pink frothy sputum coming out. And they could hear the crackles in his lungs. It was that loud, they could hear it from the door. And uh, they came in, they said, yeah, I'm Dave, I'm so-and-so, and you know, we're the paramedics. And the guy became very paranoid and he started to move away from them. And when they tried to get closer, he moved away further. And then he started like jogging around the sofa. Um, and uh, Dave said it was really weird because he would jog, in the process of jogging around this, they stopped chasing him. They just stood there and watched and you know, tried to get him to stop. But he started jogging around the sofa and he would, at one part of the sofa, they were, he was actually close to them. And um, they're talking and thinking, you know, should we grab this guy? Should we stop him or something? And his partner said, just give it a second. Um, then he collapsed and died. <laughs> so um, uh, it's hard to say whether grabbing him would have, you know, precipitated the death a little bit quicker. But uh, this is what happens sometimes when people are hypoxic. They don't, they can't think rationally. You know, when your brain's not getting enough oxygen, uh, you don't think rationally, right? So you do some um, unusual things some, sometimes. Most patients I've had who've had fulminating pulmonary edema, and I haven't had a lot of them, are usually sitting up and they're very drowsy and they look like they're near death. <coughs> They may have neck vein distension. So um, patients with chronic uh, cardiogenic pulmonary, um, sorry, chronic congestive heart failure. So this is typically a, a chronic condition that gets exacerbated. Um, they will typically, they'll have left-sided heart failure and eventually that'll lead to right-sided failure because if there's an increase in hydrostatic pressure in the lung vasculature, the right side of the heart has a really hard time pushing blood into the lungs because the, the the vessels are engorged with fluids. And so eventually the right side of the heart starts to work harder, starts to enlarge, and eventually can't eject its content. And consequently, the blood backs up into the neck and causes jugular venous distension. Now, if, if you're lying down, sex, 
uh, sorry, that was a Freudian. If you're, <laughs> if, you're, if you're lying down next to someone, maybe it's after sex, I don't know, but uh, if you're lying down next to someone and they're lying on their back and you're looking at their neck, um, it's not uncommon to see the neck vein distended up to the angle of the jaw. Again, I just caution you as paramedic students and future paramedics not to stare at the wrong things of people you love because relationships can end very abruptly for, because you're just too creepy or weird. Um, but neck veins typically distend up to the jawline when you're lying on your back, for most of us. Um, but when you're sitting up, the neck veins should not reach that level. So if you're sitting up, semi-sitting or fully sitting, and the neck veins are distended right to the jawline, that's jugular venous distension. And if you want to see jugular venous distension, where do you go? <laughs> McDonald's with Chalet at Georgia Mall. I know. Like, I, I, I beg you, you know, if you go shopping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your parents or something, just don't tell them what you're doing. Don't tell them why you're, you know, staring at old people. Just, just do it discreetly. Um, I don't want to be the cause of any, you know, family disputes or friendship breakups or relationship destructions or anything like that. But yeah, uh, look for neck vein distension. I mean, I look at people here in the college and uh, I just, you just, you can't help but look for certain things. Um, scars, the way they walk, a curvature in their back, um, uh, a short distance between the chin and the trachea, you know, all kinds of interesting things to look at. Um, so CHF, accessory muscle use, cyanosis, tachycardia, uh, weakness, diaphoresis. And the management is we get an SpO2 in room air. So first thing you do, get them on the ECG, O2. Um, we give nitroglycerin. So nitroglycerin, short form is NTG, is uh, predominantly a venodilator. So what that does, so here's your heart and you've got uh, the superior vena cava and the uh, inferior vena cava and uh, then you've got the aorta comes off here and so nitroglycerin is a dilates arteries coronary arteries other arteries but it's predominantly a venodilator so what it does is it dilates the venous system here um, and decreases um, it decreases preload and what that does is it decreases the workload on the heart so it reduces the amount of blood getting to the heart so the heart doesn't have to work as hard. Okay. Um, but because it's a venodilator, it also lowers your blood pressure. So you gotta use it with caution. If the patient always has a low blood pressure, if it's under 100 systolic, you can't give nitroglycerin, that's a contraindication for giving nitroglycerin. Um, if the pressure is 140 on 90 and you give it, um, you just gotta watch and make sure that it, the systolic pressure doesn't drop by one third or more. If it drops by that much, we don't give a second dose. But nitroglycerin can be very effective in the treatment of heart failure. 
especially if oftentimes when patients have congestive heart failure, chronic congestive heart failure, they may have a hypertensive event where their blood pressure goes up a bit uh, above what would be normal for them, and that puts them into acute failure, acute pulmonary edema. And um, so we give uh, nitroglycerin typically as 0.4 milligrams sublingual. So we have them open the mouth, lift the tongue, and we spray it under the tongue. And uh, it uh, sometimes, if they've never had nitroglycerin before, it gives them a little bit of a headache, a bit of a head rush. They may feel a little woozy. Um, but, um, and we give sometimes, uh, with heart failure, sometimes we'll give nitroglycerin in twice that dose if their blood pressure is above uh, 140 systolic and if they've got a history of um, congestive heart failure. Yeah? Is it kind of like a pink? Is it like a red pink? Yeah, yeah, it's like a red pink bottle, yeah. Yeah, it's a spray bottle. And you have to, uh, you have to purge it first. So you have to take it to the side and spray it three times. You heard that story already? Yeah. Did I did I tell you that story? Or did someone else? I don't. I can't remember. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So we take a blood pressure before we do any intervention. So we before we give any drug, we always take a full set of vital signs, and to take a full three to four minutes afterwards. You have a patient who's this sick, you're probably gonna take the blood pressure every five minutes. So you set the, uh, the NIBP, the non-invasive blood pressure device, to uh, take a blood pressure every five minutes when you got a really sick patient. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there was a medic in, um, I think she worked in Waterloo. She, I used to teach with her, and for whatever reason, I can't remember her first name, but she, um, she got a call for a guy who had chest pain, and he was sitting on his front porch and um, so our partner started and I got a set of vitals, started an IV on him, they gave him some aspirin. Uh, this was chest pain, not heart failure. And she was gonna give him some uh, nitroglycerin. So she purged the spray bottle three times. And as she did that, uh, the guy's cat was walking by. Of course, cats being curious, they see this, they go like this, right? And uh, <coughs> the guy turned and said, oh my God, my cat. And she said, uh, it's okay, your cat should be fine. And, and, and she said, she's telling me the story, she says, Rob, I really didn't think the cat would be fine, but I had to tell him I thought the cat would be fine. Anyway, so the cat took a big whiff and just stood there, and just stood there, and he's, you know, oh my cat, my, is my cat okay, let me pick him up. And she kept saying, can we just focus on you for now? Let's just leave the cat for now, I think the cat's gonna be okay, can we just focus on you? So the cat's standing there, and then it kind of, <laughs> leans to one side and then leans to the other side and then is doing this and getting back up again and doing this and getting back <laughs> up again and eventually it falls flat on its belly an unusual position for cats the paws are spread out like this <laughs> spread eagle which you know is not good for a cat this is what the cat did so okay it's a happy ending, so don't worry. No animals were at least killed in the, <laughs> in the making of this real life event. Um, so, and nobody's fault, right? I mean, she didn't, the cat came up behind her as she was spraying and the cat just went like this, so it can happen. 
Anyway, so the cat's head drops. She's telling me the cat's head drops to the floor and is just there. And this guy's now really freaking about, out about his cat. And she, she's trying to convince him. And um, she was telling me she's a cat owner too. So, you know, I'm trying to convince this guy that his cat's going to be okay, yet I'm worried about this cat, but I'm worried more about this guy. <laughs> and uh, eventually the cat um, got his head off the ground and got back onto his feet and kind of staggered away like a drunk and uh, <laughs> was okay. But, <laughs> but an adult spray of nitro for a cat, probably not a good thing. Um, I'll just tell you. Uh, so nitroglycerin uh, and high dose is very effective and CPAP and CPAP has been a real lifesaver. And primary care paramedics have only been putting CPAP on for, I would say, maybe the last five years. It's been a real significant advance in uh, the paramedic scope of practice, but <laughs> really great. Um, so, and PPV PRN, when do you PPV someone? Uh, give me one second. When do you PPV someone? The two things. Oh, I wrote it out. Give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Short sure, Yeah. <laughs> Three word dyspnea, <laughs> altered mental status. Wait, what? Oh, subutinol is the shorter breath and we yeah. can Yeah. So PPV is for patients in respiratory failure, and it's uh, three word dyspnea or no word dyspnea and um, altered mental status. Yeah, that's the key. PPV. But CPAP, CPAP, if you can get away with CPAP, CPAP is always a better route. Uh, but they have to be normal tensive as well for CPAP. So this is what a typical CPAP machine looks like. This is the one we care where I work. And um, the indications for CPAP, again, same as the last presentation, for exacerbated COPD and acute pulmonary edema. So uh, in acute pulmonary edema, or sorry, in COPD, it's for the collapsing um, conducting airways because they lose their elasticity. In CHF, it's to stent the alveoli open and to drive fluid out of the alveoli and back into the capillary network. Um, and it actually works, believe it or not. It's quite remarkable that it actually does that. Um, so there's this tight-fitting mask, high flow pressure, diminishes the work of breathing. Uh, and we adjust the CPAP in centimeters of water. We start typically at five centimeters of water and go up to 10 uh, or as high as 15. Um, I uh, generally don't go beyond 10. Now, you can't expect your patient to improve immediately. It'll take 10, 15, 20 minutes before you start to see some improvement, but I generally don't go above 10, but you can go up to 15. Um, if you take out your directive, um, you'll get a better sense of just how much, um, how high you can go up. And it drives fluids out of the airway, stents the collapsible airways and, uh, in COPDers, and we adjust. Um, it has an adjustable flow restriction, and that gives us PEEP. Right? So PEEP is, we just, when we dial it up, we're essentially increasing the PEEP. And PEEP increases FRC. <coughs> so increases the surface area across which a gas can exchange. So when do we PPV? Uh, Three-word dyspnea, altered LOA, or altered mental status. Drowsy, restless, agitated, lethargic, as we said before. Um, if you have to PPV, uh, this is the patients who are unable to follow commands because they're, they're altered mentally. Uh, we keep them in a sitting position, we explain what we're doing, even if they seem confused, we always talk to the patients, explain what we're doing. I talk to my unconscious patients, because usually hearing is the last thing to go. We don't know what they hear or don't hear. Um, 
So don't mock the patient while they're unconscious, because um, chances are they'll remember it, and you'll get a written complaint. Uh, show them the BVM, quickly explain how it works, uh, get behind them or beside them and apply the massive face and deliver breast to augment their tidal volume uh, when they inhale. And now, when you're positive pressure ventilating or assisting CHFers, you're not as worried about the rate um, compared to asthmatic, status asthmaticus, six breaths per minute, exacerbated COPD, no more than 12. CHFers, yeah, I would say 12 to 16. Maybe you're not worried about gas trapping so much. You're worried about fluids in the lungs. Uh, okay, switching gears here, changing topics. Um, you had a question. I forget your name now. Uh, yeah, my name's Liam. Uh, Liam, thanks, Liam. When you were talking about uh, nitroglycerin, yeah, um, it was 0.4 milligrams. It's at two five minutes. Yeah. Six. Yeah. Okay, so uh, a couple other things about the directive. It says 0.3 to 0.4, uh, and then for high dose it says 0.6 to 0.8. It just means that if you're giving nitroglycerin by pill form under the tongue, it's usually in a dose of 0.3. Um, most, most paramedics carry the spray, which is 0.4. Um, Q5 minutes means that you give it every five minutes. Um, provided the blood pressure stays above 100 systolic, and provided the pressure doesn't drop by one third or more and up to a maximum of six doses. If you have to give beyond that, if you're working in a rural area where you've got longer transports, you'll have to patch to base hospital doc to get additional doses. But you, want, you, don't, you won't want to wait till you're at six. You'll want to uh, um, call them before. Um, some docs though will just tell you, you know, if you've hit six, that's it, just stop there. Uh, and um, so yeah, Q five minutes uh, means every five minutes. And you have to keep that timeline too. You can't, uh, uh, you, you, you want to stay away from three minutes or four minutes or seven minutes. You want to try to keep that five minute timeline. So you got to time it. And the reason for that, you'll talk about pharmacology in, in, um, in third semester, but um, you know, you've got um, uh, the drug availability, bio, uh, the, no, sorry. say availability and then you've got time and uh, drugs work within a therapeutic window so drugs come in different dosages because the aim is to get a certain amount of the drug in the system and maintain that certain amount of drugs so there's a therapeutic window that might look like this and so the idea is to get the drug into this level and keep it in that level but if you, um, and you do that by giving nitroglycerin Q five minutes. If you were giving it, um, you know, if you gave one at uh, five after eight in the morning and you didn't give the next one until quarter after eight in the morning, what'll happen is that it'll drop out of the therapeutic level and, and then you give another nitro and it'll come back in. So you wanna try to keep it in that therapeutic range. That's why we give drugs in certain time intervals not too quickly, not too infrequently, not too slowly, that sort of thing. Let's talk about pulmonary embolus. So pulmonary embolus uh, is not something we encounter very often in the field, but you should recognize the signs and symptoms. So the etiology is um, a thrombus, in other words, a clot from a deep venous system, typically in the leg. It might, it might be in the calf or it might be in the thigh. 
As you might imagine, a big clot in the thigh is more worrisome than a clot in the calf. They're both worrisome, but if they dislodge, they become an embolus, and they travel to the lungs, and they block one of the arteries or arterioles in the lungs. <coughs> and um, so 90% uh, originate in the iliofemoral veins, and um, to form clots, patients often have this uh, thing called Virchow's triad. And Virchow's triad um, means their risk factors, and we see that in 90% of cases. And one of them is they have venous stasis, so something that um, impedes blood flow in a limb, like immobility, um, you know, like someone's been in a leg cast for a long time, and if you're in a big leg cast, it's a good idea to contract your muscles on a regular basis to keep the blood flowing. Um, if they have uh, edema in their feet, that's usually a sign they've got impaired blood flow. If they have a history of heart failure, they likely have high, uh, low blood flow. If they're paraplegic, um, they'll have low blood flow because they're not using the muscles in their legs, so they need therapy to keep the, the, the blood flowing in their legs. Long flights will do it. Right, you fly to Australia or to China um, and you're sitting for long periods of time. They recommend getting out of your, the seat of your plane once an hour and walking to the bathroom or just walking down the aisle and back again. While you're sitting, you can contract your leg muscles and your butt muscles. You know, pretend like you're squeezing a peanut between your butt cheeks. Um, it's a good idea maybe minus the thrusting of the hips because the people sitting next to you might think you know, something really weird and creepy about this guy <laughs> sitting next to me who's gyrating his hips, you know? <laughs> I would just turn to them and say, it's hemorrhoids. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, uh, at my age, if I go on a long flight now, I'll take a couple of baby aspirin before, before I go. Uh, a buddy of mine does that, and I thought, that's a brilliant idea, that's a great idea. Baby aspirin, yeah, why not? You know, keep, um, reduce the risk of clot formation. So yeah, long flights uh, is a danger. And uh, we sometimes get people who um, have acute pulmonary embolus uh, after a long flight. Um, Hypercoagulability, so obesity uh, puts you at risk of uh, clot formation. Malignancy, so cancers, pregnancy, estrogen replacement therapy, um, being on birth control, uh, is a risk. Uh, drinking too much alcohol is a risk. Uh, smoking cigarettes is a risk. Um, all those things can lead to hypercoagulability. And thirdly, uh, endothelial damage. So um, endothelium meaning the, the lining of the veins, right? So uh, recent trauma, recent surgery, recent burns, uh, people with indwelling catheters, uh, IV drug use typically have chronically sclerosed veins. Uh, so all of those are risk for thrombus formation. Um, and um, ultimately, if you get a clot in the lungs, it causes an infarction of the lungs. So uh, when you hear the word infarction, it's not exclusive to uh, cardiac. Uh, uh, that would be a pec um, uh, pectoral infarction, or cardiac infarction, or myocardial infarction, rather. Sorry. Yeah, you had a question, Matt? Oh, I was going to say, a while ago my uh, grandmother had surgery on her leg. Yeah. It caused a clot to get thrown out and she had pulmonary embolus and stroke too. She did, eh? That's sad. Simple surgery. Yeah. Yeah. 
surgery. Yeah, so that's, uh, this is a post-mortem uh, clot discovery. Uh, it's about the size of a hot dog. That's a big clot. So if a pulmonary embolus kills you, um, it'll be a big clot. It'll be a very sudden onset of intense pain and then followed almost immediately by loss of consciousness. So it's a real quick death. It's a real quick death. You know that expression, um, I hope to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not like the screaming passengers in his car. <laughs> <laughs> See what paramedicine does to you? This is what I'm saying, right? It's, uh, okay, presentation. Uh, so dyspnea, uh, about 90% of patients. Uh, tachypnea, about 90, over 90% of patients. Uh, sudden onset of pleuritic pain. That means pleuritic means sharp pain in the chest. They can usually pinpoint it. You know, it's right here or it's right here. Um, uh, and when you auscultate the chest, because it's a clot in their vessels, nothing to do with their air passages, you'll hear equilarentry. Um, if they've had pulmonary emboli before or they've had smaller pulmonary emboli, you might hear some localized crackles from an inflammatory process. But generally speaking, their air entry will be clear bilaterally. Now, here's a question for you. See if you remember. A pulmonary embolus, is this an example of a shunt or a pathological dead space? Shunt. <laughs> <laughs> How many say shunt? How many say pathological dead space? Wow, a lot of hesitation. Eh? It's a dead space. Yeah. So just think about it this way. Think about it this way. Um, so it's a clot in a vessel. It doesn't interfere with air movement down to the gas exchanging areas. So there's air down to the gas exchanging areas, but that area now becomes pathological dead space, right? A shunt is anything that interferes with air getting down to the gas exchanging areas. So bronchospasm, mucus plugs, inflammation, uh, foreign body air obstruction, the mother of all shunts. In the vessel. Right? Yeah, so it's in a vessel. So it doesn't interfere with air movement so down the to the... Is still happening. So what? Gas exchange is still happening, No, it's not happening. Oh, okay. Yeah, gas is getting down to that area, yeah. but there's no blood flow. So it's a pathological dead space. Okay. Right? Um, yeah, so a shunt um, is... Um, so I think some of the confusion with shunt versus dead space is a shunt actually involves the blood flow. But what happens is if there's atelectasis or if there's um, an alveolus that's full of fluid or it's blocked in some way, what happens is the capillaries, uh, the precapillary sphincters in, the, in that area shut off and blood gets diverted to other areas. And that, that's called a shunting of blood. So, oh, okay. yeah. So think of, uh, think of shunting as anything that interferes with air movement down to the gas exchanging areas. And a pathological dead space is anything that interferes with blood flow. So, so like like are we talking shunt now or dead space? Yeah, so pathological dead space, there's either a pulmonary embolus where there's a complete lack of blood flow to that area, complete blockage, uh, distal to that clot, um, or shock state where there's just diminished overall blood flow to the lungs, um, as opposed to a shunt where it's where there's interference with air movement down to the gas exchanging areas. 
So you listen to the lungs in someone who's got a pulmonary embolus who has, you know, sharp chest pain uh, in a specific area, you, the lungs sound clear. You've got good energy bilaterally because nothing wrong with the, the air getting down to the gas exchanging areas. There's a problem with blood flow. Um, oftentimes there's a cough. Um, there may be splinting or guarding, meaning, you know, it hurts this side, so they maybe breathe more in the um, healthy lung. Uh, typically JVD, right, because if the right heart's trying to pump against this obstruction, blood backs up, back into the right heart, back into the right atrium, back into the neck vein, so you get JVD. Okay. There may or may not be hemoptysis. Hemoptysis is? Blood. Yeah, coughing blood. Good, coughing blood. As opposed to hematemesis, what's hematemesis? It's what? No. Uh, sorry, what's? Puking. Yeah, vomiting blood. Yeah. Yeah. We don't use puking in medicine, but <laughs> yes. Uh, tachycardia, so often patients with PE are tachycardic. And they may syncopize. So it's not uncommon for someone to have an acute pulmonary embolism. They have a syncopal episode, you get there, they're awake, they're having pleuritic chest pain. Uh, so I'll ask the question, did you, uh, before we got here, did, did anything happen? Did you faint or anything like that? Uh, when did the start? Did it come on suddenly? What were we doing at the time? That sort of thing, they may syncopize. And, um, uh, about 10% of uh, patients with a PE will be hypotensive. They'll be in shock. And that's a form of uh, what we call obstructive shock. Um, so that would be uh, definitely life-threatening. Um, now, uh, I should talk about the risk factors. I talked about Virchow's triad, but um, the most common risk factor in terms of medical history for pulmonary embolus is a patient who has a history of deep vein thrombosis. So they have a history of clots in their legs. And sometimes they'll present with um, a painful calf. It's warm to touch. It may be reddish. Uh, it really hurts if they try to flex their ankle, try to bring their toes towards their nose. Very, very painful for them. Um, so uh, thrombus in the, or if they've got pain in their thigh, um, that's unexplained, that's a, a bad sign. Uh, so uh, deep vein thrombosis or DVT is the most common underlying um, issue. So management is, there's not a whole lot we can do. Um, SpO2 in room air, ECG, SpO2 is probably going to be normal. Uh, O2, PPV, PRN, so only if needed, and that's it. Any questions?